Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. Extraordinary love. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. On June 22nd of 1996, Ku Klux Klan members held a rally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They were met with anti-Klan's protesters, and as you might imagine, violence quickly erupted between the Klansmen and the anti-Klan demonstrators. One unidentified white man was thrown to the ground where he was kicked, stomped, and beaten with sticks. Thomas saw the man being beaten, ran to him, fell on top of him to fend off the blows. And for those a few moments of explosive racial hatred, Thomas became a human shield protecting the Klansmen from his deadly attackers until one by one the protesters gave up and walked away. Now this would have been a heroic act for anyone to perform. But it's especially impressive when we discover that the name of our hero is not just Thomas, that's the last name, the full name is Keisha. Thomas. Keisha Thomas was an 18-year-old black female. A local newspaper ran a stirring picture of the scene. Keisha hovering over the Klansman with outstretched arms, shielding him from what could have been deadly blows and tears streaming down her face. A violent race riot ended just as abruptly as it all began. Why? What was it that extinguished the burning hatred between the two races on that day? Was it the tear gas of the police? Or could it have been the tears of Keisha Thomas? Was it the powerful arm of the law? Or was it the outstretched arms of an 18-year-old girl who loved her enemy so much that she would risk her life to save him? I think the caption in the newspaper headline that day expressed it well. It was titled, Charity Diffuses Hate. Love extinguishes animosity. And like Keisha, all followers of Jesus Christ are to be characterized by a powerful love that overcomes hatred. God has called his people to diffuse the hatred in our fallen world with the power of his love. Constitutional amendments can't do that. Government programs can't do that. Sensitivity training can't do that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can. And here at the close of Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus urges his disciples to love their enemies. 
and to even pray for their persecutors. And the Lord Jesus goes on to explain why. It is because this is the heart and character of our Heavenly Father that we as His sons and daughters must exhibit. As the Lord Jesus begins His teaching here at what we might call the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, He reminds us that the Sermon on the Mount never contradicts the Old Testament law. It challenges instead the perverted misinterpretations of the Old Testament law by some of Christ's contemporaries. Now, we've seen that again and again in our study of Matthew chapter 5, but it is especially clear here because the words, love your neighbor, that Jesus quotes in verse 43 are a direct quotation from the Old Testament law found in Leviticus 19.18. But the next phrase, hate your enemy, is not a quotation of the Old Testament law. In fact, that command does not appear anywhere in all of the pages of Holy Scripture. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy? What he's saying is, this is what the rabbis have taught you about the meaning of the Old Testament law. But they were blatantly wrong. Yes, the command to love your neighbor does appear in the Old Testament, but the command, hate your enemy, never does. Where does this idea come from? Well, evidently, some of the rabbis of Jesus' day thought that the specificity of the command to love your neighbor implied that you were permitted, perhaps even commanded, to hate all who were not your neighbor. And many first century Jews did not consider non-Israelites like their Roman oppressors to be their neighbors. Thus the rabbis reasoned, you're not obligated to love the Romans and your hatred of them is biblically justified. Now, we know that there were some first century Jews who taught this kind of thing. We might appeal, for example, to the Essenes of the Qumran community, the group that was responsible for the copying and preservation of what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Several times the Dead Sea Scrolls say that members of the community are, quote, hate the children of darkness. And the children of darkness are any who don't belong to their community. Josephus actually mentions this in his history of the Jews when he says that the Essenes were required to take an oath that, quote, causes one to shudder. In other words, this was a terrifying oath to most. That terrifying oath was a vow to, quote, hate always the wicked and assist only the righteous. And once again, the, the righteous were those who belonged to the Essene community and the wicked were all outside of that pale. We see another example of this in the rabbinic scholar Maimonides, who actually ar argued that while it was not appropriate for an Israelite to murder a Gentile, on the other hand, they should not intervene to save the life of a Gentile. He said, for example, if a Jewish midwife saw a Gentile mother in the pains of childbirth and both the mother and the infant were about to die and the midwife had the ability to intervene and save their lives, they should simply stand back and allow the two to suffer until dead. Similarly, Maimonides taught that if an Israelite 
sailor saw a Gentile passenger fall overboard at sea. He was not to reach out his hand and pull him back into the ship, not throw him something that would float that might save his life. He was simply to allow that Gentile man to drown. And Maimonides explained, it is written, you shall not rise up against the blood of your neighbor, but this Gentile is not your neighbor. You see the point. When the rabbi said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, what they mean by that is, love people who are just like you, but you are justified, even commanded, to hate all others. But Jesus corrects this gross misinterpretation of the Old Testament. And he does so for several reasons. Number one, Christ recognizes that although Leviticus 19.18 did focus on an Israelite's obligation to love their neighbor, that's only because this is in the context of a passage that is all about relationships within the community of the congregation of Israel, the people of God. The context specifies discussion of relationships with your fellow Israelite. This isn't a specificity intended to justify hatred of all others. And that becomes very clear if you read the second half of the chapter. Because in the second half of the chapter, Leviticus 19, 33 through 34, the love command is actually applied not just to neighbors, but even to foreigners. The scripture says, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. That is, you should treat that Gentile like you treat an Israelite. You are to love him as yourself. For you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, when the law said you were to love him as you love yourself, that's the very same principle, that's the very same standard that was applied to love for the neighbor back in Leviticus 19 18. When you put the two passages together, it's clear that Israelites were obligated to love both Israelites and non-Israelites, both Jews and Gentiles, indiscriminately. Not just people who were like them, but even the foreigner was to be shown this compassion. And then, of course, even if we wanted to restrict the command, love your neighbor, to neighbors only, we know from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan that he defines all fellow human beings as our neighbors, including even the Samaritans, one of the peoples most detested by first century Jews. And because Christ handles the Old Testament responsibly and in its original context, he pushes back against this interpretation and he says, no, you shall not hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. And he uses a verb form for the imperative here that implies that we are to love continuously and habitually. We are to show compassion to others and we are to keep on showing it. Regardless of how the enemy might respond to our compassion. We are to love them with an undying love that does not wane or grow cold even in the face of their continued mistreatment. Now the enemy here is not just in context a non-Israelite, a Gentile. This is not merely someone of a particular ethnicity because Christ goes on to describe this enemy in verse 45 as evil and unjust. He describes this enemy in the second half of verse 44 as one who persecutes you. 
Now, this isn't just a person with whom you have some kind of personality conflict. This isn't just a person who has a different color skin or a different culture or a different language. The enemy that Christ is describing here is a spiritual enemy. Someone who rejects our faith. Someone who abhors our moral convictions. Someone who blasphemes our Lord. Christ says that we are to show love to enemies even like that. In the original context, this would refer to Jewish opponents of the Christian faith like Ananias and Caiaphas, high priest, who sentenced followers of Jesus Christ to death for their faith. But it includes also Roman opponents of the Christian faith like the Emperor Nero who would take professing Christians and dip their bodies in flammable solution and then hoist them to the top of tall poles and set their bodies ablaze, transforming them into living, writhing human torches to illuminate his garden parties. Or who took Christians and wrapped them in the skins of wild animals and then threw them into the Roman arena to be trampled by elephants and gored by bulls or rhinos or ripped to shreds by wolves or lions. In our day, our spiritual enemies might include an Islamic terrorist or that atheistic university professor who attempts to tear down the faith of every believer who steps through the door of his classroom. Christ's point is that we are to show love and compassion even to people like that. And one of the ways that we are to show love and compassion for them is by praying for them. Christ says, I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now the word pray here is important, but the preposition for is equally important. Because many people in the first century world prayed about their spiritual enemies. They prayed about their persecutors, but they didn't pray for them. They prayed against them. They prayed what were known as imprecatory prayers that sought to bring the curse of God down on their enemies. An example of that is this prayer, add guilt to their guilt. Do not let them share in your righteousness. Let their names be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. That's an imprecatory prayer that's praying that God would send enemies to hell, that they would not be numbered among the redeemed on judgment day. The Christ says, oh no, when you pray about your enemies, you're not to pray against them. You are to pray for them. You are to pray for God's blessing on them. The Apostle Paul explains that clearly in Romans 12, 14, when he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And of course, what is the greatest blessing that we can pray for our spiritual enemies, for those who oppose our faith and our biblical convictions? The greatest blessing we can pray for them is the blessing of salvation, the blessing of conversion, the forgiveness of sin and the transformation of their hearts and lives by the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. That's how we're to respond to that Islamic terrorist, that atheistic university professor. We should pray that God would break their hearts with repentance of sin and move them to faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King. And what's interesting here is that the grammar of Christ's command indicates that Jesus' disciples are not just to pray for God's blessing on their persecutors long after the persecution has ended, long after the stripes have quit stinging, 
long after the wounds have begun to heal. Oh, oh no. The grammar implies that you are to pray for your persecutors even as they are persecuting you. That is, even as their scourge lacerates your flesh to the bone, even as they force you to carry your cross to the place of execution, even as they pound their nails through your hands and your feet, you are to pray for God's blessing on them even then, just as the Lord Jesus did when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, why does Jesus call his disciples to express this extraordinary love to those who are most unlovable? Well, notice that he doesn't do it for pragmatic reasons. He doesn't say you should love your enemies because that will transform your enemy into your friend, though it might. He doesn't say pray for your persecutors because love extinguishes hate. Though it might. No, actually, he says to do this regardless of the response from your enemy, regardless from the response of your persecutor. Why? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this is the point that he's making. Love for enemies is the kind of love that the heavenly Father displays and expresses. And because we are sons and daughters of God by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to exhibit and express the character of our Heavenly Father. This is that principle we've seen so many times in the Sermon on the Mount, the law of spiritual genetics, like father, like son, like parent, like child. Just as it is the nature of the son of an earthly father to resemble his father in many ways, his appearance, his mannerisms, his gait, his accent, the children of God will resemble their heavenly father in their character and behavior as well. It's important to note that Jesus doesn't say love your enemies so that you may become sons of your heavenly father. He's not talking about some kind of love that some way, somehow earns salvation. He says, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your heavenly father. This doesn't earn salvation. It expresses salvation. It doesn't make us sons and daughters of God. It displays the fact that we are. Some of the rabbis of Jesus' day taught this principle, when you behave as sons, it shows you are sons. And that's the principle that guides the teaching of the Lord Jesus here. When we relate to others like the heavenly father relates to others, it shows we are sons and daughters of that heavenly father. And so then the Lord Jesus goes on to remind us of how God relates to all humanity. He says, For he, your Father in heaven, makes his Son, notice all of the cosmos belongs to him, the Son is his. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying the heavenly father doesn't just direct the sun to shine on and bless the crops of his friends. No, it shines on and bless the crops of his enemies as well. It says same way. He doesn't just send his rain to fall and water the crops of the good and of the righteous. But he sends that same rain to bless the crops of even the evil and the wicked. 
And this is the point that he's making. Although the heavenly father certainly shows special favor to his own children, he lavishes grace and kindness on all humanity. It's what theologians refer to as common grace. Now, that's not the way we would do things if we were in charge of the cosmos. We would probably send our sun to shine and bless the crops and the water, the rain to fall and water the crops only on those that we liked, only on those who were nice to us, only on those who benefited us in some way. And the fields of our enemies would be a parched wasteland. But that's not how God goes about things. He blesses the fields of all people indiscriminately so that they can reap an abundant harvest and have food for themselves and for their families. And in doing so, he is lavishing love, not just on his friends, not just on his children, but even on his enemies as well. And the point that Jesus is making is if you are really sons and daughters of God who have inherited by virtue of the new birth the character of your heavenly father, you will love your enemies too. For never are we closer to God's own character than when we love other people indiscriminately, than when we embrace even those who mistreat us, when we show mercy and kindness even to those who persecute us. So Jesus asked the question, what kind of character are you going to express? He says, you've got two options here. You can behave like a pagan. That involves verse 46, loving those who love you. But the tax collectors do that, who are regarded as some of the most immoral and unethical people of the day. And he says, you could greet only your brothers. The greeting, of course, is the greeting, shalom, peace be unto you, which was a pronouncement of blessing. But many people in the first century didn't want to give that greeting to people they disliked because they didn't want those people to be blessed. And Jesus says, if you withhold the blessing from those you dislike, from those you regard as an enemy, you're acting like the Gentiles do. You're acting like idolaters do. You're acting like pagans do. And the point that he is making is how we relate to other people, even our enemies, demonstrates whether... We have the character of an unbeliever or a char the character of a believer. Whether we have the heart of a pagan or whether we have the heart of the heavenly father. Jesus goes on in verse 48 to quote a paraphrase of Leviticus 19.2 and Deuteronomy 18.13. Uh, Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Deuteronomy 18.13 says, You must be blameless before the Lord your God. And Christ has taken those two commands and put them together. But here's the point that he's making. He's telling the rabbis of his day that they have completely misinterpreted the command, Love your neighbor as yourself because they missed the hermeneutical key at the very beginning of the chapter. The hermeneutical key, the guide to interpretation, was the command, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Christ is reminding them that the guiding principle of the whole discussion was that God's people were to manifest the character of God. And essential to God's holiness, essential to his divine perfection, is his love, compassion, 
grace, mercy, and kindness. Christ's point is, when you interpret love your neighbor as you love yourself to justify hatred of others, you're not manifesting the holy character of God. Because essential to God's holy character is his indiscriminate love. Love is the hallmark of the sons and daughters of God. The Father's holy character has been imparted to us through the new birth. And indiscriminate love is the supreme expression of God's great holiness. Now, this teaching is glorious, but this teaching is also terrifying to me. It's terrifying because I have known so many people over the years who claimed to be Christians, who claimed to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, but seemed devoid of the Father's love. It seemed to delight and hating others. I encountered this in my very first pastorate. Folks in that first pastorate loved me to death. Never a problem until I preached that sermon called The Sin of Racial Prejudice. Oh my. There were some people in the congregation who were furious with me over that one. In fact, there was uh, one little lady who refused to speak to me after the service. You know, in a, a country church, the pastor stands at the door and shakes the hand of people as they exit, and everybody's supposed to say, good sermon, great sermon, whatever, that kind of thing. And... Uh, this, this lady always complimented the sermons. I was very close to, to this little lady and her husband. They had me in their home for Sunday dinner at least once a month, very close to them. But I noticed that on this particular day, she didn't come and shake my hand. She tried to march uh, as far away from me as she possibly could to head to the parking lot. I decided I would head her off to the pass. So I hustled over to her and I shook, stuck out my hand and said, good morning, and called her name. And she said, I am so mad, I don't think I should talk to you right now. And I said, well, why are you so mad? And she turned to me through clenched teeth and she said, preacher, I would rather burn in hell than share heaven with her. And I won't finish her sentence. As a polite Southern boy who wanted to be respected to his elders, I was 20 years old at the time, I, I turned to her and I said, Oh, miss, you don't mean that. And she clenched her teeth even tighter and said, I swear to God that I do. Now, this is one of those moments and my experience as a pastor where I so badly wish I could rewind the clock and do it over again. Because I kept trying to convince her you don't really mean that when it was obvious she meant it with every fiber of her being. And what I wish I could have said then. And what I certainly would say today in a similar situation, when she said, I would rather burn in hell than share heaven with the, I would say, that breaks my heart because I'm afraid you will. I'm afraid you will burn in hell rather than share heaven with people who are different from you because this kind of hatred is completely incompatible with genuine Christianity. I wish I could say that this kind of hate is a rarity in churches, but it's not. I've been mistreated at times by lost people. I've had lost people 
slap me when I shared the gospel with them, throw things at me when I preached, slash my tires. I had a man chase me with an ax once, threatened to kill me if I ever spoke the name of Jesus in his presence again and so forth. I expect that from lost people. But sadly, I have encountered some members of churches who are just as full of bitterness and hatred. It was not only a member of a church that I was pastoring, it was a deacon who threatened to torture my baby girls and my wife before my eyes until dead and then murder me. According to police investigators, it was not just a church member, it was a deacon of the church who broke into my church office at night and raked all the papers off the desk and set them ablaze in the middle of the office floor to burn the place down because he was angry at an upcoming recommendation that we were going to address in a business meeting. You'll notice that I chose my word carefully when I described these people. I did call them deacons. I did call them church members. I didn't call them disciples of Jesus Christ. I didn't call them believers, and I didn't call them Christians. And I didn't use that restraint because of spite or animosity, but because everything I understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that the gospel not only results in the forgiveness of the believer, it results in the transformation of the believer's heart and character. And Paul could not be more clear. When he lists the fruits of the Spirit, the evidence that the Holy Spirit of God indwells a person's heart. He says the fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost, what? Love. That's why the Apostle John can say so plainly in his first epistle, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I'm afraid that sometimes in the Christian church, especially here in the South, where we're so devoted to politeness and, and being nice, that we confuse being nice with being loving. Some of you probably thought it would be terribly impolite and harsh and ugly to say to that lady, now I, I'm afraid that you probably will burn in hell because of the hatred that I see you exhibiting right now. I'm convinced that although that might not seem like a nice reply, it is the most loving reply. It is not loving to pretend that that's okay. It is not loving to pretend as if that kind of animosity is consistent with the transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. What so often happens in our churches is because we want to be nice, we tiptoe around mean, bitter, ugly, hateful people because we don't want to set them off. We don't want to stir their wrath. It's okay if they're lashing out at others, but the last thing we want is for them to lash out at us. And so we bend over backwards to pretend everything's all right, to give them their own way, when if we really loved that person, we would compassionately confront them with their hatred, call them to repentance, and show them that true Christianity produces compassion, love, kindness, mercy, gentleness, forgiveness, and leaves no room for such bitterness and hate. All of us, I think, have seen Jesus Christ take bitter, hate-filled people and melt their hearts with his love so that they became merciful and compassionate. 
One of my favorite memories of this is when I was just a boy. Our dad brought an unusual house guest home to live with us for about a month. His name was Tommy Terrence, and he was a parolee from Parchman State Penitentiary in Mississippi. Tommy Terrence had been an assassin for the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He had been apprehended by police when he was attempting to bomb the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi. When the police intervened to try to stop the bombing, there was a shootout. Tommy Terrence shot a police officer in the chest, nearly killed him, but ultimately was caught and sent to parchment. He and one of his prison buddies managed to escape. After being out for several weeks, they were finally tracked down by law enforcement and there was another shootout. And this time, Tommy's partner was killed. Tommy was nearly killed. After weeks in the hospital, he was finally released and the officials at Parchman said that he would spend the rest of his life in solitary confinement in a small concrete cell where he had nothing to do but either stare at gray concrete walls or read a small Gideon New Testament. In his boredom, he turned to the New Testament. And as he read the New Testament, his soul was gripped by the truths of the gospel. And that man who had burned crosses found himself kneeling at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and confessing faith in him as God, Savior, and King. And instantaneously, there was a dramatic transformation that everybody who encountered Tommy Terrence would recognize. This mean, terrifying, bitter man was transformed into someone who was loving and kind and gentle. Prison officials ultimately reported to Governor Cliff Finch the dramatic transformation in this man. And amazingly, Cliff Finch decided to grant Tommy Terrence early release from his prison sentence. And my father, who had met Tommy, he was professor of criminal justice at the University of Mississippi, and he had taken field trips of his students there at Parchment. My dad, who had met Tommy, was convinced that he was genuinely transformed and wanted to help him get on his feet in his new life. So he opened up our home to him to live with our family. He helped him get his first job. He even helped him enroll as a student at Ole Miss. I've watched the life of Tommy Terrence over the years, and year after year, I'm only more convinced that his conversion was the real deal. Tommy Terrence would go on to become the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., a powerful evangelist, a powerful apologist for the Christian faith, and a very powerful voice for racial reconciliation. He and civil rights leader John M. Perkins would later co-author the book, He's My Brother, Formal Racial Foes Offer Strategy for Reconciliation. And what was it that produced this dramatic transformation in an assassin for the white knights of the KKK? Well, the most recent title of Tommy's autobiography expresses it well, I think. The title is Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Experiencing the love of Jesus Christ, the Savior who died on the cross for his sins in his place, did not stop there. The love that he experienced, he felt compelled to express. And just as Christ had loved him, even when he was the Lord's enemy, 
So he wanted now to love others that he had regarded as his enemies. I think all of us would agree that the most beautiful and powerful description of Christian love in all of Scripture is 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But never forget the great apostle of divine love who wrote these powerful words was the former Saul of Tarsus who describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 as a violent man, a persecutor of the faith because he had violently seized every man and woman and boy and girl he could find who confessed faith in Jesus as God's Savior and King. He had shackled them and he had hauled them off to Jerusalem for trial before the Sanhedrin Council in hopes that they would be sentenced to death for heresy and blasphemy and hopefully executed. That's the man who now writes this powerful description of Christian love. What was it that caused this dramatic transformation? He met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, believed in the crucified Savior and resurrected Lord, and his heart was forever changed. And Christian love extinguished the hatred. When we experience the love of Christ, we will unfailingly express the love of Christ. And if you embrace the love of Christ today, by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus as Almighty God in human form, the Savior who died on the cross for your sins in your place, the King who has the right to rule and reign over your life. If you look to the cross and see the holy, perfect Son of God there dying, not for his friends, but for those who were his enemies, those who defied his authority, those who blasphemed his name, you will never be the same again. And the love that you have experienced, you will be compelled to express. As the same Savior that saved Saul of Tarsus and made him who was a violent persecutor into a compassionate, kind, and gracious man. The, the same Savior who so transformed an assassin for the white knights of the KKK can save and change you as well. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? How do the people who know you best see you? Do they see you as kind, compassionate, merciful, gracious, and gentle, harsh, ugly, bitter, mean, hateful? That's an important question. 
Because the Lord Jesus says it is by loving even our enemies that we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father who loved his enemies as well. When the Apostle John lays down tests that we can apply to see if we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, one of his principal tests is whether or not we are characterized by love and Christian compassion. He says, he that does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he asks, if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen? Our love for God is made evident by our love for other people. What does that evidence say about the state of your soul? If you're not characterized by Christian compassion, would you pray right now that the Lord Jesus would save you? Not just forgive you, but also transform you and part the character of the Holy Father to you. Until people in this community never have cause to doubt whether Christ Baptist Church is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say, we know that it is. We'll know the people there are the real deal because Jesus said, by this will all men know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Father, I pray that every person in the sound of my voice would experience the love of Jesus Christ, that they would recognize that the Lord Jesus an incomprehensible love was sacrificed for them, for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of their sins, and to unleash his transforming power in their lives. Lord, please move them by this love to repent, to believe, to be forgiven and changed until every one of us is characterized by that extraordinary righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because it is a righteousness that not only obeys commands but a righteousness that exhibits your character as our Heavenly Father. Make us perfect even as you are perfect and remind us daily that the key to your holy perfect character is your love. In Jesus' name, amen.